Let me pray for us. Dear Father, thank you for Clark, who taught Sunday school last week and on the covenant. Thank you for the book of Numbers that you use uh, your scriptures and the, the covenant to teach us about how faithful you are and how righteous and omnipotent you are. Lord, we come to you humbly, knowing that uh, our life is wrapped up in your life, how good and powerful you are. Uh, Lord, protect us, guard us, help bring our children into the light, um, draw us ever closer to yourself, forgive us for our sins, but, but drive us to, to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to give just a little bit of background again, because we're in this big story of Balaam, and so just refresher course, um, this, is my, this is my picture of Israel. So you have the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, this is the Mediterranean Sea, this is Jericho. Israel has come right here, so in the book of Numbers, a lot of it's wandering through the wilderness. But now they are camped right here. Um, They have come up from the south. Uh, Edom, which would have been Esau's descendants. Moab, which is Lot's descendants. Um, um, They've passed them. They have conquered kingdoms uh, up in this area. The uh, Bashan and Ammon. They've conquered those kingdoms. But they're, they're settling right here. And the king of Moab, a guy by the name of Balak, he has watched them just destroy the Amorites, and so he is concerned. He's a, he doesn't want to have this powerful nation as his neighbor. He's afraid for his own sake. He doesn't think that he has the military strength to go ahead and conquer Israel outright. So he sends an envoy to Balaam, who's a seer or a false prophet. Balaam is, is uh, if this is Israel here, Balaam's in this area. He's over here. So he's a long way away. And he has an international reputation of being able to manipulate gods such that the gods will, he, the gods will do what he wants them to do. That's, that's, so Balak thinks... I can get Balaam to come down, and uh, Balak is a follower of Baal, just like Balaam, which is going to be a major false god of Israel, but Balak knows that Israel's god is Yahweh. He knows that, but he thinks, and so does Balaam, that Yahweh is just like any of the other gods of their people, it's just a local god that I can get to manipulate and, in a sense, get Israel's God to switch sides and instead of blessing Israel, to actually curse Israel so that he can defeat them in battle. So that's kind of the, the history of what's happening on. The first few uh, chapters that we've been having with in, in uh, this the whole famous scene with Balaam's donkey is basically to teach Balaam that Yahweh cannot be manipulated. So that's we've, we've gone through that. That, that God is above the gods, and it was, it was through his first word was to tell Balaam, don't go with the envoys, stay here. And yet, uh, Balaam thinks, oh yeah, that's just your first word, I'll kind of keep working with you, and we'll get it to, so that I'll uh, win you over to my side. That doesn't happen, in fact, God uses the donkey to tell him, I, I am uh, above you, uh, you're... you're I could manipulate and use you like I could use a donkey, basically. But just because Balaam has learned that lesson doesn't mean Balak has learned that lesson, the king. So that's where we are right now in chapter 23. Balak and Balaam's come down. He's interacting with, with Balaam. Uh, they've already had one oracle, uh, and Balaam has not given the word that Balak wants, and so Balak's really upset with him. They try moving locations. They try to go from one mountain to another mountain so that 
Because on the mountains are where you get up to God, and then from the mountaintop you can kind of uh, see eye to eye with God and get him to do what you want. And so um, we're in the middle of that. Uh, let's see if there's anything else I need to... Yeah, I think that's all the background. Any questions? You guys up to speed on where we are? Thank you. Okay, we're in chapter 23. This is the second oracle, beginning in verse 13. It's kind of long, 13 through 30. So, uh, let's see. Nathan, bring that down here to the suites. We'll let them read for us a little bit. Um, You can either read 13 through 30, Ken, or you can do half and half with Susan. Numbers 23, beginning at verse 13. I mean, you could go 13 to 21 and 21 to 30 or whatever you want to do there. Numbers 23, 13. To what? Through 30. I'll make sure it's still on. Yeah, you're on. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see them, only the outer part of them, and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering. And the princes of Moab were with him, and Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has the strength, has strength like a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any (laughs) against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying, All that the Lord speaks, that I must do? Uh, which To the end of All the word? way through the end. Okay. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, and I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Okay, thank you. A couple things happening here. One... You have to understand, Balaam is between two, he's got Yahweh on one side, and he's got Balak on the other. So, I think Balaam knows at this point that he is not going to manipulate Yahweh. But I also think that he still desires he just still desires to get paid from Balak. 
<laughs> right? I mean, he, he, knows, he knows Yahweh's not like the other gods. He can't just manipulate him. At the same time, he's still weaving this, this web with Balak, hoping, I think, to get some sort of a compensation from Balak. Um, so what, what kind of things happen here? This is the second oracle. Uh, Balak thinks in verse 13 that the problem um, is uh, maybe confidence. Uh, you're seeing too many of the Israelites. Maybe we'll move you to a different location, and you can maybe curse them from there. Um, uh, remember again, most of the gods were what we would call geographically limited. You know, like, uh, we like, um, if you could be like, um, geographically challenged or, uh, uh, <laughs> so like, so their, their gods were stronger in their, in their core place. So move them a little bit further away, you know, location mattered. We, we don't think in those terms today. We just think God is God over everything, but, but they are thinking geographically limited. So that's why move to a different place. Maybe there's a little bit better chance. Maybe you don't curse all of Israel, but you curse a portion of Israel. So Balak's playing this game, and, and, and Balaam plays along with it. Like he, he's like, yeah, you know, put some rams out there, make some um, altars. And I think it's interesting that they're standing close by to where Moses stood, you know, on Pisgah. Might not be the exact same place, but um, there's, a, there's a, I think, some implications there symbolically. Um, well, they move to a different location, and then in verse 15, what is the word that they get? What's that? God is going to bless Israel and Judah regardless. Now, and, and they, they make a statement that he is not a man that he should lie. So think about this. So God had made a statement, I will bless Israel. Right? And so everything that's happening in this whole story is trying to get God to reverse what he's already said. And you know how we often say God is a God who doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a covenant-keeping God. The idea when God speaks, it can never be revoked. Even in the New Testament, when Paul is talking about the law given under Moses, he goes back and he says, that can't cancel the promise given to Abraham. Whatever happens, you can't cancel that promise because that promise was a word spoken by God and when it's spoken by God, it will never be changed. That's the point, okay? So they're trying to, everything they're trying to do is get God to do something that God just by his own character cannot do and that is change himself. He can't go back on what he has already said. Uh Now, this, this creates all kinds of, this will create all kinds of theological struggles as time goes on, because as Israel moves on, they will actually, in a false way, trust in the blessing upon Israel, thinking that they can live any way they want. And, and God will have to show them that that's, he's not a God that can be manipulated that way either, right? So, um, but this... This principle that God has established blessing upon his people is, is like, a, it's like a stake in the ground that you can't let go of. You can't just make, you can't make the blessing dependent upon human response even. You, it, 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 the blessing is the blessing, period. And how God works that out over time it gets more complicated, but, but the, the sheer fact of this is, is that it cannot be revoked. And I said last time, which is a couple weeks ago, so if you forgot, that's okay. Israel doesn't even have a clue any of this is even happening. It's not like they're fighting to keep the blessing. 
God is just doing it. They don't even know what's happening, okay? Uh, and it comes on the heels of Moses' worst day where he strikes the rock. And so even their, their greatest leader has a bad day, and it, it's not dependent on that either. It's sheerly dependent upon God's word. And I can't tell you as I get older how thankful I am. Uh, I keep singing that hymn, the Lord has promised good to me. Now, it's not just me as an individual, it's me as I'm in Christ, through faith in Christ, but he has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. I have to keep coming back to that, because I doubt it all the time. Um, and so, um, anyway. So here he is. Uh, the, the lessons are, there is no way to bring God's curse upon Israel. There is no enchantment that can, that can rob them of the blessing. Um, God is with them. Uh, he is the one who has created Israel. He, they are a special nation. He is their king. Uh, all those kind of things. He will devour their enemies. All that is in this, period. Uh, how does Balak respond to this in verse 25? How should he respond? If he was converted, how would he respond? Let me go over and let me just bow down to the Yahweh. You know, let's let's change my God to your God, that kind of thing, right? That would be the, but that's not what happens. Um, He basically says, look, if you're not going to curse them, at least don't bless them. You know, it's like, if you're not going to say anything bad, don't say anything good. Um, Balaam, in verse 26, sounds like he's righteous. All along I've told you that I can only do what the Lord says. Um, Again, he's trying to save face here. It's not just... He, Balaam hasn't responded in complete adoration and, and obedience to Yahweh either. He's trying to save face because it's his power that has proven faulty. In all the other situations, he's been able to manipulate the God such that the, these false demons would be able to side the way he wants them to, but it's not working here. Okay, And they decide to go to a different place. Um, Peor, P-E-O-R, is a, uh, it's a high and holy site for the worship of Baal. So it is, it is a place um, connected with Baal. All right, so let's go to 24, chapter 24. Uh, Mary, would you just read verse 1, and then I'll have you read some more in a minute. So hang on to the mic. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. Okay, so make some observations on this one verse here about anything, really, just anything that you see here. Maybe I'll I'll give you a chance. Okay, so there is a decided change in Balaam's behavior. Good, that's a good observation. Hmm. So it's it's not a it's not a change into humble and contrite. But he at least acknowledges, maybe helps us understand uh, where it says every knee will bow to Jesus. Everyone will acknowledge Jesus' lordship, even though maybe not everyone will come to him in a humble, contrite way. It's a good distinction. What does it tell us about all the behavior of Balaam prior to this? If you doubted whether Balaam was trying to manipulate God previously, you know it here, right? 
Because it tells you that only at this time does he make any change in his outward behavior. So that means all his behavior prior to this time was doing exactly what he was saying here. Uh, looking for omens. Looking for omens. You know, he's, he's trying to do what I would call pagan manipulation of God. So, um, why do you think he sets his face towards the wilderness? Right, because wilderness is where Israel is right now. It, that's what they call them. Israel is, even though they're really on uh, the banks right there, they still are calling this the wilderness. Um, so there's a decided change. He's, he's, his face is more directed towards Israel rather than against Israel or to Balaam, to Baal. Excellent. A sense of awe. This is something he's not encountered before. It's very good. Mm -hmm. All right, Mary, read two through four. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the spirit of the God and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The Oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. <laughs> so this is decidedly different, right? Don't you get a different feeling here than the previous statements of Balaam? You see the statement, lifted up his eyes. In Scripture, that's a good thing usually. Lift up your eyes from where does my help come kind of uh, mentality. <clears throat> There's a feeling that, that God is using Balaam like a rag doll. See the statement about the spirit. What does it say about the spirit? Came upon him. Again, this is not, you know, Balaam's manipulation of God. God just says, I'm going to use you right now. And this is, this is a phrase that happens to true prophets of God, you know, in Israel. This is the Spirit of God came upon Ezekiel. The Spirit of God came upon Elijah. I mean, those sorts of things. So, that uh, doesn't have to mean conversion of Balaam. It just means that, that God is taking control of him and using him at his will. Um, by the way, that's the same thing is true of, of like the, the gifts of the Spirit are not the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a sign of the Holy Spirit converting someone, changing their heart, regenerating their soul, giving them new life. The gifts of the Spirit can be imitated by Satan, which is sometimes scary, but that can happen. So uh, what does Jesus say? Um, they, they come back, even the demons bow to us. And Jesus says, ah, don't be thankful that the demons bow to you. Be thankful that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? There's a, there's a distinction between those two things. So... Um, yes. Very much so, yes. Okay, so um, how does Balaam respond when his eyes are opened here? Verse 4. Yes, again, I'm thinking of Philippians 2, every knee will bow. Everyone will come to the acknowledgement that Yahweh is true and that he has blessed his people. His eyes are uncovered, he's seen the truth. Um, but as Howard said, this is not true brokenness and repentance. Um, Job, when he comes to his awareness that how great God is, he falls down, he repents in dust and ashes. Um, 
it, it's a little bit different. Okay, five to nine. Uh, let's let Lee read there. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him? Up, blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Hmm. Thank you. Okay, so what do we have here? What This, this uh, ongoing vision, this statement of, of uh, Balaam, what does he say now? Israel flourishing. Abundance. Think of John 10.10. I have come that they might have life and might have it abundantly, right? Uh, The images, look at the various images. These are poetic images. Not a poet myself, so, uh, you know, I'm much more kind of literal, architectural kind of thinking, but but a palm grove, you know, a palm grove that is is, uh, stretching. It's not just a little palm grove, but one that's stretching afar, right? Fruitfulness that is endless. Think about Jesus saying in John 15, I have come that they might have fruit and might have it abundantly. You know, so this is the same kind of, uh, this incredible abundance. Uh, Their gardens are by a river. So what would we say there? What's the, it's not just abundance here. What would you say about a garden by a river? What's that? Constant, yes, it's, it's a constant provision. It's not just like you have a good season, a bad season, a drought. No, this is ongoing, perpetual fruitfulness. I think all this is a picture of the new heavens, new earth. Uh, but you, you'll see this is, the picture is so lofty that it can't be anything but the new heavens, new earth. But uh, like aloes that the Lord has planted. What, what, what would be the picture of aloes? Healing, that's right. Um, and I would say that, you know, it's not just aloes and the things that aloe can maybe heal a burn or, you know, stomach troubles or whatever, but this idea that, that there is nothing that cannot be healed in this, this fruitfulness that God is giving. And then he says the, the cedar trees. What do we think about the cedar trees? Lebanon, they're powerful, they're beautiful, they're, the birds come and flock to them, they're, they're over everything, right? But the best, the best image is the first one. How lovely are your tents. Beautiful. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always feel lovely. And the church certainly doesn't always look lovely. And we're not in chapter 25 yet. We may get to it today. But this statement is being made at maybe one of the worst moments in Israel's history. At this very moment, they are... They are having all kinds of sexual immorality. They are, they are looking terrible. The, daughter, the sons of Israel are lying down with the daughters of Moab at this point. And yet, this is the statement that he's making. <clears throat> this is God's perspective. 
This is what God says about his people. I consider my people lovely. I have promised to bless them. And after those first few verses, like I would say, I delight in them. And then they bless others. So you see, water shall flow from his buckets. So like you, you've got a bucket, but the water's coming out of it so quickly that you've got plenty to give to others. It's flowing out of their buckets. Uh, his seed shall be in many waters. So in other words, it's, waters are sometimes used as the nation's. So it's not like Israel is just going to be one little nation that's going to be blessed, but his, it's going to go out to the nations. Even the Gentiles, that's exactly, yes. You see that phrase, many waters, that's often a, a phrase of the nations, the Gentiles. The king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Um, Agag... Uh, um, See what I have here. Um, there, there, let's see here. What do I have? Um, Agag is probably a a title title name for the Amalekites. So. Um, At this point, the Amalekites would probably be representative of a very, very strong nation with a great king over it. Israel doesn't even have a king at this point. Uh, So there's going to be a king in Israel that's going to be above Agag, which just basically means that that the king of Israel is going to be above every earthly king. So... Again, I think it reminds us of Jesus, that at his name, every knee will bow. Verses 8 and 9. Is the blessing that is being pronounced upon Israel, so go back to our covenant thinking, is the blessing that is being pronounced by Balaam right now on Israel a new blessing? It's the same blessing that was given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it, it is the blessing of God. It is this continued working of God's blessing. This blessing is almost, in verse 9, spoken verbatim to the blessing given to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You should remember that because of Genesis stuff. Our source of blessing, our confidence of blessing, is always this statement of God, the promise that he will do it. And our response is always trust in that promise. We live by faith. Now, in this this statement, this is actually a call to repentance for Balak. Right? Do you see that? Everyone who tries to curse you will what? Be cursed. So what has Balaam been trying to do all this, or Balak been trying to do? Curse Israel. So right then he should be saying, uh-oh, I'm bringing curse upon myself. I should be the one to bow the knee here. Right? It's a call to repentance. The blessing, if all the blessing is found in Israel, then you should want to become a part of Israel, like Rahab will do later on. But Balak has no such intention, does he? Um, Let's see. Debbie, do you want to read a little bit? 10 and 11? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to 
to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave, leave it once and go home. I said, I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Mm-hmm. So striking his hands together probably gives you, as a reader, some mention of, of Moses striking the rock. You know, he's so angry at Israel, he's striking the rock. Balak's angry, he's striking his hands, he's ready to, to, um, to just get Balaam out of his presence. Uh, and basically says, you can forget any honor or payment from me. Get out of my face. <clears throat> so if, if uh, Balaam tried to play the game where he didn't actually uh, bless, uh, didn't do what Balak wanted in hopes that he still might get some payment, he's not getting anything. Erica, would you read 12 and 13? And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, what the Lord speaks that will I speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Okay, so just kind of concluding some things with Balaam. All along he's had this this idea that I'm only going to do what God tells me to do. So now he's in a sense saved to face because he's saying, I've told you this all along. Even though we know from that previous verse where it says that he changed his attitude, that that wasn't his attitude all along. Right, so that's how you know this, right? So I'm not just, it's so easy to get caught up in his fine-sounding words that you miss that he is uh, a scumbag. Uh, So now he says something very interesting in verse 14. I will let you know what this people will do to your people when. In the latter days. Um, So rather than bringing a curse upon Israel, Balaam is now about to pronounce a curse upon Moab. But this curse will only come to be in the latter days. Following this? All right, John, would you read 15 and 16? Or actually, 15 through 19. Thank you. Okay. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter that shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Hmm. Thank you. What, what amount of, obviously this is the ultimate destruction. Of Moab. And they throw in Edom as well. But uh, what grace do we find in the fact that this won't come about immediately? It gives time for repentance. And you can think in terms of, like, these nations are close to Israel. You know, they're, they're down here. They're, here's Israel. They're close to Israel. And they have some connection with the, the covenant of Israel. There are nations at this time that are, don't have any even 
clue who Israel is. I mean, I just reading books about China and things recently, and I mean, there's people all over the world at this time. And it reminds me of the book of Acts in Acts 17, where now that the gospel is going forth to all the world, Acts 17 says, God is now calling all nations to repentance. He's actually calling Moab and Edom to repentance right now. They've got the word. Israel is blessed. If you, bless, if you stick with Israel, you're going to be blessed. If you oppose Israel, you're going to be cursed. And you're going to die. Whoever remains opposed to this promise of blessing will themselves be destroyed. That's, that's, so there's, but God does actually redeem some people from Moab and some people from Edom. Who's the Moabitess? Ruth, right? Isn't it nice that God doesn't just destroy Moab now? Ruth wouldn't have been saved. So, so there's this, uh, well, there's, there's, a, there's this, same thing's true of us. If you want blessing, you find it by faith in Jesus Christ. If you deny that, if you oppose Jesus Christ, what can you know will happen to you? You'll be judged. Right? You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either clinging to Christ or you're not in Christ. You know, and that's, that's it. That's the, that's the big picture. doesn't look like that in our world. looks like all the other religions of the world are doing just fine and whatever. But ultimately, we have this promise, just like was given here, this is a promise to us. You either bow the knee to Christ now in faith or you will be judged by him. It's just that simple. Um, notice the star or the scepter. Who's that referring to? Christ, the Messiah, right? Uh, he will shine. He will give great light. Isaiah 14, we often say, um, uh, talks about the um, Satan falling from heaven, but then there's also uh, the, the bright and morning star, which is Christ, the star of Bethlehem. Um, what will Christ do here? Verse 18. He'll conquer. Uh, crushing the forehead of Moab, connected with crushing the serpent's head. Um, and then in verse 19, what, is, what should all this produce in Israel? They will have courage, and they will do valiantly. Yes, trust, reliance. Thanks. And Edom shall be a possession, and it talks about uh, Seir also being a possession. Is there not a positive element of that? When you have a, a good, benevolent king, oh, sorry. What, what, what's your translation? Do you have ESV? Um, I've got the New King James, and it says, Edom shall be a possession, Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession. But it's, I, I'm thinking it feels like there's a positive element to that as well, because when you have a benevolent king, it's a good thing for kingdoms that are taken over. Yeah, yeah. So uh, their current uh, sovereign kingdoms will be dispossessed. That's what... ESV says, but, but you're right. If they're going to be dispossessed, it's not going to be a vacant land. The kingdom of Israel will be taken over them, and that will, could be seen as a positive thing. That's good. Yeah, yeah. But not for the people who are opposing him. <laughs> it's just a matter of as much as we think of ourselves as weak and not, <laughs> not really worthy of ruling, we, it's Israel who's doing ruling. You know, we're the ones actually exercising this dominion which um, is sometimes hard for me to believe, but it, it is true. Um, this brief judgment 
Um, I won't go into all this right now, but if you go to Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah, they all expand on this pronouncement. So it's not, it's not like, oh, well, we heard this once and it's no big deal. So if you really want to, if you're studying those books, you, you're going to find out that their situation is actually the outworking of what's happening here. So. <clears throat> Okay, let's see here. Um, so let's read 20 uh, through 22. Oh, let's just read 20 through 25. Let's, let's finish this out. You can give it to Michael. He doesn't have the verses in his, bu- his Bible. Do you, Mike? Just read through the end of the chapter. It starts with, uh, then he looked on A- Amalek. Thanks. <laughs> Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Kittim, and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Okay. Um, I think what is going on here, and you have a lot of uh, you know prophecy, it's forward-looking, but I think what we're looking at are some of the, uh, the, the strongest of Israel's enemies that they will experience even down the road. Um, you got the Amalekites, uh, which will be an ongoing struggle uh, in the statement that they will be destroyed. The Kenites, um, uh, I have, I'm just going on some uh, Bible dictionary stuff here, so don't know a ton on this, but um, they say that the Kenites lived in a in a rocky region, kind of a rocky highlands, uh, and it made them more difficult to be defeated. And if you remember when the Israelites went into the Promised Land, they always had trouble dispossessing the people in the rocky highlands. So um, that's why the Scottish Highlanders were so difficult to to beat. Right? <laughs> Afghanistan, that's right. So, again, I think these are just statements that it doesn't matter how strong the enemy, uh, you think your enduring place is there, you might nest in the rock, but it doesn't matter because you're going to be defeated. Uh, and basically, in verse 23, who who actually is going to live when all this happens? Uh, it, do, it, it doesn't matter how far you go, ships from Kittim, uh, these, these nations will be destroyed. Uh, No one escapes God's wrath, period. Um, So lessons from all this at this point. What's that? When Asher takes you captive, it says your enemies will be destroyed, even though you may be taken captive. Yes. Which, you know, points us to Babylon and Assyria. Your, your enemies get progressively bigger, but God is constantly faithful. Yes. So. Yes. And in all of this, I, I, I just know the next chapter, the greatest enemy is that which is inside. The, the external enemies are not a problem for God. He wiped out everyone in Noah's flood. Not a problem. The problem is getting the people that he's pronounced blessing on to be like him and not like the enemies. And that is the problem we all struggle with, right? That is our, that's our challenge. So, um, so, but here's some lessons I would have. Number one, it is futile to oppose God. Good to remember that. If you think you're working against God... Stop it, because you will lose, period. Um, All who are not with Israel 
will be judged. Which is why it is so important that we, in our covenant thinking, we do not separate Israel from the church. If we were to say that God no longer is for Israel, but now he's for the church in Christ, we would be making our own grave. Because if he wasn't faithful to save Israel, how can we trust it to be for save you? You see that? These promises to Israel. So what we, what we come up with in the reform camp is that there's always been in Israel there's been those who are externally Israelites but not true spiritual Israel there's always been that distinction because God is constantly kicking people out and bringing people in to his, to his church. And that the church, it, it'd, be, it'd be easy to think of this as the church is the inside. <laughs> but that's not entirely true either. Israel, or the church, is Israel. And even within the church, you have true church, true, church, true people in Israel and those who are just externally of the covenant. So there's always that, that uh, struggle. And I draw a dotted line because you don't really always know until the judgment day who's true Israel and who's not true Israel. Which is why we should all challenge ourselves. You know, um, I haven't worked with the youth in a little while, but, but the statement is, I used to tell them all the time, just because you've been baptized, you're a member of the church, doesn't mean you don't have to wrestle with whether or not you're truly saved. Are you truly? I still wrestle with that. When I feel my sin, when I wonder about my, I struggle. Am I truly saved? Have you saved me, Lord? It is an okay thing to struggle with that, even though you are in here and you have a right to all the promises. So, um, you're talking about Israel, the nation now. All. Who are circumcised? Because the, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament is circumcision. Okay? In the New Covenant, what we talk about with the church, it's baptism. That's the, that's the visible sign of, of in the covenant. So if you're in the Old Testament, you were part of Israel if you were circumcised and you hadn't been kicked out. With the coming of Christ, it's... Uh, I would say in 70 AD, God kicks out the entirety of Israel, and I'll call it unbelieving Israel. So what occurs with the coming of Christ, it doesn't just occur while he's here on the earth, but after he rises up the dead, pours out his spirit at Pentecost, and the apostles in the book of Acts, they are a testimony of the outpouring of the spirit to the nation of Israel, and when the leaders reject Christ, and God brings down destruction on the nation of Israel in 70 AD. From that point on, unbelieving Israel, Paul refers to them as a synagogue of Satan because they, no longer, they don't recognize their Messiah. So before Christ came, everyone who was circumcised, looking forward to the Messiah, but now that Christ has come, only those who are believing in Christ are true Israel. But we would argue that anyone who's physically baptized in, is a part of the church and are believers in Israel. But the fact of the matter is, even in the church, there are some who have been outwardly baptized but haven't truly embraced Christ. And so they're not a part of true Israel. Is that making sense to you? Sure. Yeah. So there is something that occurs, and this is, it's, it's not easy to see this, but as Jesus tells his apostles all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go make disciples. He's basically removing the center, the authoritative center of ruling his people, taking it away from the Sanhedrin, and giving it to his apostles. That's what he's doing there. They are now the ones in whom is the, the, the locus of redemption. 
Um, so Israel is, and then if an Israelite wants to become a believer, wants to be saved, they believe in Christ and they submit to the, the church, the visible church, and we get baptized. Well, yeah, well, I don't, there's no, no problem here because if you were an unbelieving Israel, that is a branch that has been cut off, but God could at any point regraft in the, the branch that's been cut off. So he wants to take a, a, a child of the, who's a unbelie- child, let's say, of unbelieving Israel, and then that, that child grows up and, and believes in Christ, then he is not just a wild branch. He is a, a, the natural branch being regrafted in. And so you have Israelites being redeemed today, just like, so that would be a Messianic Jew. They're, they would traditionally call themselves Jews, but their, their locus, their, their, their faith, is not in their Judaism. Their faith is in Christ. And I would think that uh, the book of Ephesians does an excellent job of this, of saying there's not two tiers of Christians. So whether you were close by like an Israelite and believed in Christ, or you were a gentle, Gentile far away and believed in Christ, we are all one, and every spiritual blessing belongs to all of God's people. Does that make sense? So, uh, a couple last things in closing here. Uh, just remember... All of the promises of blessing from the very beginning, all of them blowing up into Christ, they're all ours in Christ. It's not some given to Israel, some given to us. Anything that is an eternal spiritual blessing belongs to us in the church, period. And it should comfort you to know that God will never renege on his word. He'll never go back on that. Um. So, we will close with me reading. I gave you the spiritual high. And this is so true, but listen to the beginning words of chapter 25. When Israel lived in Shittim, that's where they are, right on the border here. Uh, Jericho's here, so they're right in that area. There's Shittim right here. Um, When Israel lived in Shittim, while everything that we've been just talking about is going on, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's what we're going to deal with next week. Right? So, so like, you're on this spiritual high. No, no other uh, God can deal with our God, and he never goes back on his word. And then you're just like, and the people yoke themselves to Baal. And it just, and, but it, you know, if we're honest, all of us in some way fail to attach all of our hopes to Christ. We look for blessing in the things of this life and the things of this world, and we all in some way say to God, I don't think I can trust you alone for everything. I have to do it myself, somehow figure this out. And so we're all guilty of this, but it, it just, it helps me to understand that God, God knows how hard it is to get sin out of his people. And what made me realize this more than anything else was understanding union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. The only way that, that sin can be driven out of your life is if God unites you to himself. If sin was any more, like, less powerful, he'd figure out a different way. But the only way to get it out of you is to unite you with the divine so that the, the divine actually overcomes the sin. And that's our hope. When we see him face to face, it'll be completely gone. So, Heavenly Father, forgive us. We are like our spiritual forefathers, uh, many of whom did know you, and still struggled with their uh, not being trusting of you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to find 
confidence and peace in you. I'm convinced in my own heart that I will never truly conquer my sin until I believe that that sin will not be the source of my happiness. And you are the source of blessing. Help us to believe that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.